What's up, boys and girls? Hope you're enjoying your summer. This is another edition of Kicking Out at Two. I'm your host, Dave Rosenbluth, and thank you so very much for hitting that download button and joining me for another exciting trip down nostalgic pro wrestling memory lane. Got a pretty cool show planned for you this week. I'm really excited about this one because this is one of the shows that I've been wanting to do for a very long time since I started this podcast. Uh, we're going to be covering outdoor wrestling stadium shows, otherwise known as Blue Skies Wrestling. That's right. We're going to be covering some of the most important and memorable events to be held in an outdoor setting in professional wrestling history. I can't wait to get into that with you. But before we do that, allow me to remind you all social media is where it's at. And that's where we are. Facebook.com forward slash kicking out of two. Hit that like button. If you haven't, tell a friend to hit the like button. Hit the like button yourself. Anyone who loves nostalgic pro wrestling. I got all kinds of great stuff going on over there. I got pictures and videos and debates and discussions memes, gifs, gifs, links to the archives of our shows each and every week when I post it on the page, all that stuff and so much more, facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two, be a member of the kicking out at two crew and that membership, it applies over on Twitter as well, our handle is at Kicking out to K-I-C-K-N-O-U-T and the number two. Uh, we got the same kind of fun going on over there. Not as strong of a following. I'm really hoping that we can still build on that. I've been saying that for a while now, and let's let, let's work towards that. Not as strong as Facebook, but we're getting there. Um, so give us a follow over there on Twitter. Same kind of stuff we got going on. Pictures, debates, and discussions. I really haven't had many debates with people on Twitter on the Kicking Out of Two page. Just a, a lot of likes for uh, different posts and things like that. So... But let's make the Twitter let's make the Twitterverse of kicking out it too interactive and fun. So uh, please, if you if you have Twitter and you use it fairly regularly, give us a follow at kicking out two k i c k n o u t and the number two. And we can't forget to remind you that kicking out it two is also a part of the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network over on Podbean. That's right, we're one of the shows, a part of that great nostalgic pro wrestling network that we have going on over there. Kobe Knight is the one steering the ship. He's doing all. The, uh, the 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 structuring of the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network. I work also with him on a show called Marking Out the Days Weekend Warriors, which you can find each and every Saturday on the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network over at Podbean. That show covers WCW Saturday Night and WWF Superstars from 1992. The available episodes that are currently on the network, mind you. Um, so we've been covering a lot of 1992 from the spring of 1992 and moving forward. Uh, that's a lot of fun. Have a lot of laughs. Uh, it brings me back to you know the 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 fond the fondest days of my wrestling fandom when I used to watch wrestling on Saturdays. When if my parents didn't have anything scheduled for me, whether it was Little League or whether it was uh, you know uh, activities. Or just, you know, chores around the house. It was Saturday mornings for superstars and Saturday evenings for WCW Saturday night. So we recap those and then some on Marking Out the Day's Weekend Warriors each and every week. The network's also got some other great shows such as Gaijin Wrestling Radio where Kobe... uh, Kobe sits down and he runs down um, ring of recent Ring of Honor shows, NXT takeovers, some New Japan stuff. Um, so if if that's your speed, if if you know New Japan, Ring of Honor, that that style of wrestling is your speed, then you know you should check out Gaijin Wrestling Radio. Uh, Kobe has a, a whole backlog of archives of shows of that show available. I'm just you know jumping over my words here. Show of shows, Jesus Christ, can't even can't even get my my my, my opening statement right here. 
here. I apologize. But anyhow, um, we got that show, Origins of Attitude, with him and Jimmy Price. Hulkamania is Dead, which is an interesting one. It's a fantasy book show where um, they fantasy book the WWF from 1984 to 1993 without Hulk Hogan. Imagine that. You know, I'm a big Hulkamaniac, so um, I've caught a few episodes of it. It's a lot of fun. Um, the guys have fun with it. They don't take it too seriously. It's not like most of you wrestling fans out there that try to fantasy book after you've watched one show and you think you got it all figured out and then when someone doesn't agree with your opinion you get fucking mad these guys have fun with it and it's and i have a lot of laughs when i listen to it every once in a while when i have the opportunity to so you can check that out as well all of these shows by the way like i said under the retro mania pro wrestling podcast network banner over on podbean if if podbean's not your thing and you listen to us on itunes you can search retro mania and you'll find all the backlog archive shows under the retro mania banner Kicking out of the two, marking out the days, Gaijin, Hulkamania is dead, Origins of Attitude, you name it all under there. Same thing on Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Spreaker, and all other podcast platforms available. Just search Retromania. And you can also find Retromania on Facebook. That's Retro with a W, W-R-E-T-R-O Mania over on Facebook, as well as their Twitter handle, Retromania Pod. So be on the lookout for more shows each and every week over on the Retro mania pro wrestling podcast network give them a like and a follow and be a part of the nostalgic pro wrestling fun that is the retro mania pro wrestling podcast network all right that has uh that has completed the portion of this show where i plug all the shit that i need to plug so i can have more people follow me and like me and be a part of the kicking out at two crew and the family over at retro mania we're done with all that now let's get into the topic Outdoor wrestling events in, st- in a stadium setting. Blue Skies Wrestling, as I'd like to call it, this week's show. That's the title when you click on the link. Um, you know, do, upon doing some research for this show, um, I had to go back and I had to s- dig really deep. Um, and I, I, there, was a, there was a show on WWE Network called The Legends of Wrestling Roundtable, and they covered this subject of outdoor stadium wrestling settings. So I watched that and I took some notes down and tried to you know form it into my own words and into my own thoughts um, for you guys, as well as uh, doing some other research online. Um, some of it reliable, some of it questionable, but nonetheless, um, I'm such a big fan of this concept because it, it's a, it's a different presentation to wrestling on TV. Um, it makes the show feel more important. It gives it a sporting event type of feel, a Super Bowl kind of feel when you're in an outdoor setting. Um, and for, for wrestling fans who, or for, for casual fans who don't watch as much or new fans that turn on a show and they happen to watch a stadium show or an outdoor wrestling event, to the outside viewer, seeing all those people converge on an event like that outdoors makes your presentation look that much more important. Makes it, makes it feel, um, like I said, very much important to the outside viewer, and it's going to entice them to want to watch this genre so to speak as uh, as pro wrestling so um that was one of the things that really stuck out to me when it, when i was thinking about this concept was the presentation the production value of having an outdoor wrestling event um and all the memorable outdoor wrestling events that have transpired um over the over the course of wrestling history now um i had to do a little bit of research beyond my existence um for some events that had taken place and give you guys, and I wanted to give you guys a little bit of history of 
outdoor stadium settings in professional wrestling to kind of give you a feel and an idea of how it began, how it's evolved. Um, Upon doing some of my research, in the 1930s and 40s, this was before wrestling was revealed to be a work. Um, Football and baseball stadiums hosted major pro wrestling events, and these events used to be broadcasted on the radio. This was before television even existed. Um, And I don't have any kind of list of the events or who wrestled at these events. But upon doing my research, um, the thirties and forties were a big time period for, uh, pro wrestling being held in outdoor settings like, uh, you know, baseball and football stadiums. And they drew pretty well from what I understand. Um, like I said, it, fans who couldn't make it to those events, they converged and sat around their radio and, and listened in from home. Um, the, I guess you could say that was a time before podcasting was a thing way before, Uh, podcasting was a thing so that's kind of interesting upon doing my research Um, the most notable and earliest memory of an outdoor wrestling event while I was doing my research comes from June the 30th 1961 in Comiskey Park in Chicago Illinois where the Chicago White Sox used to play um Buddy Rogers defeating Pat O'Connor for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Uh, The Comiskey Park um, show had 38,862 people in attendance with a gate of $148,000. Now imagine $148,000 in 1961. That's a lot of money for 1961. That's like you could set you could set yourself up for life, uh, you know, in 1961 with one hundred and forty eight thousand dollars. And the reason why this is such a a, a big outdoor stadium wrestling moment is because to the best of my recollection upon doing my research, this was the first stadium show of its kind to be broadcasted on national television in the early infancy of TV in the 60s. So this was a big deal. And. With the way wrestling was at that time, with the territories, um, you know, seeing a guy like Buddy Rogers capture the NWA world title from Pat O'Connor on television um, was a pretty big deal. It really was. Um, And Buddy Rogers was a big name at that time in in, in wrestling. He still is a a huge name. He's one of the the forefathers of the the genre known as professional wrestling. A lot of people say if it wasn't for a guy like him... um, you know, a, a lot of a lot of what we see in wrestling or what we've seen in wrestling, um, you know, 25, 30 years ago wouldn't have transpired if it wasn't for a guy like Buddy Rogers and what he brought to the business. So um, that was a pretty cool uh, little statistic there. Um, you know, like I said, TV in its early infancy, a stadium show. Imagine living in the 60s, getting a television Maybe having three or four channels on it the most, and one of them has a wrestling event with a with a, a, a packed baseball stadium, and it's for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. I know, I, I, as a kid, I would imagine if I was old enough and alive during that during that era, excuse me, I'd be pretty jazzed up to to, to watch it on TV. So that's pretty cool. The the, the first stadium show of its kind to be broadcasted on television. Um, let me give you my, some of my early memories of, of um, outdoor wrestling stadium settings. Uh, the first time I knew that something like that existed was 
reading what was was looking in the pages of one of the the, the after magazines the pro wrestling illustrated magazines in the grocery store justin has told the story before on this show where you know mom and dad bring us grocery shopping and we all sit down legs crossed in the middle of the magazine aisle and we have about five or six wrestling magazines while mom and dad are getting all the groceries um and I'm sure on one of those occasions, uh, whether it was with my parents or even my grandparents, my my my, my dad's parents, Nana and Grandpa, we um, you know I, I took many a trips to the grocery store and, and made my way to the magazine aisle, and I, I distinctly remember um, one of those occasions where I picked up a magazine and I saw the results of the Ric Flair, Kerry Von Erich match from Texas Stadium, May 6, 1984. Um, I saw pictures of it. Now, I probably was three or four years old, so I would, yeah, probably three years old, so I would, I would guess that um, these pictures were from the magazine were highlighting um, a prior match. It wasn't like they were just reporting that this match took place uh, because in, in 1984, I was one years old and I wasn't watching wrestling at the time. But I'd, that was the first time I had a conscious memory of seeing pictures of an outdoor stadium setting. Um, and as a kid, you, you, you couldn't help but think it was an important event that took place when I was looking at these pictures of Kerry Von Erich winning the NWA World Heavyweight title. So um, that was probably the first time I had had any knowledge that wrestling was held outdoors. And then um, as I grew up and time went on, um, you know, the, 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 the WrestleMania three was held in the Pontiac Silverdome that was indoors, but... Um, I through the through the after mags I got to see more of these more of these pictures and see other stadium events take place like the big event um, from Toronto in 1986 headlined by Hogan and Orndorff which by the way we will be covering in a few weeks or I should say next month at the end of August um, for the 33 year anniversary we're going to be covering that with a special new concept I'll tell you guys about it in a little bit. Um, but yeah, so it's um, it is certainly uh, uh, you know a time period in my childhood where um, you know when I was when I was looking through these magazines, I couldn't help but be attracted to the spectacle of it. Made it look like it was important. I was like, man, I got to find a tape to watch that. You know what I mean? And so some of those events um, that I would that I would see the pictures of in the magazines include um, the uh, the the. The Parade of Champions from World Class Championship Wrestling. Um, those events would be held at um, the, uh, the, uh, the the Texas Stadium or even the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas from World Class Championship Wrestling. Um, the first taking place in 1961 and, and in, then in 1972, but then annually from 1984 to 88. And they called it the Parade of Champions. Um, Mainly in 1984 as a way to honor David Von Erich, who had passed away in February earlier of that year. And then it was renamed the Von Erich Memorial Parade of Champions. And at that inaugural event, um, in front of the largest crowd to watch a pro wrestling event in the United States up until that point, it was roughly around 40,000 people. Uh, 
like I mentioned earlier, Kerry Von Erich defeated Ric Flair for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Uh, Von Erich was the challenger, and it was a memorial to David, and the storyline going in was that Kerry Von Erich was going to capture the world championship that none of his other brothers could. And apparently, um, wrestling... Uh, critics and experts out there claim that David Von Erich was probably well on his way to becoming the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. He just had the the, the smarts for the business, and unfortunately, um, he passed away untimely uh, in Japan in a hotel room in Japan in February of, of earlier that year. Um, that same event in 1984 was um, was also headlined by. Um, Actually, before I even get in there, the atten- the official attendance, looking at my notes, was 50,123 people with 43,517 paid um, in attendance. Um, on that card, you saw Chris Adams and Sunshine defeating Jimmy Garvin and Precious in a mixed tag team match. Uh, Butch Reed defeated Chick Donovan. Kamala with Skandor Akbar wrestled the Great Kabuki with Gary Hart to a double disqualification. The Junkyard Dog wrestled the Missing Link and defeated him by DQ. Rock and Soul, Buck Zumoff and Iceman King Parsons defeated the Super Destroyers, Bill and Scott Irwin, for the NWA American Tag Team Championship. Um, a big drawing point of this show, other than the Kerry Von Erich Ric Flair singles match for the world title. Um, Saw Kevin Von Erich, Mike Von Erich, and returning Fritz Von Erich defeat the fabulous Freebirds, Michael Hayes, Terry Gordy, and Buddy Roberts for the NWA World Six-Man Tag Team Championship. Um, Michael Hayes on that Legends of Wrestling roundtable um, talked about you know his involvement in that show, the importance of that show, how it affected the 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 the. The roster and the people involved the world class because it was a memorial to David Von Erich. Um, and he talked about how when they announced on TV that Fritz was coming out of retirement um, to team with his boys against the Freebirds, there was a $23,000 jump at the gate that week uh, for tickets. So, um, you know, in 1984, especially in Texas with the Von Erichs, man, that was that was that was pretty cool. That was a hot that was a, that, that was a hot crowd right there. And if you go back and you watch that, I believe you could find that on WWE Network under the World Class Championship Wrestling uh, um, section uh, in the vault. Um, the 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 crowd that those Texas crowds, man, were very distinct. And I've kind of talked about it on the show for a little bit. Um, those crowds loved their wrestling. They believed in their wrestling. Southern wrestling fans believe in their wrestling. They go along with the show. They're not like us in the Northeast that try and call bullshit on everything. They are fans through and through. They cheer the good guys and they boo the bad guys. And it's still, you know, the case to this day. Um, and you could hear the audience, um, especially the women, when those baby faces would, um, would be in danger. And you especially heard those women scream when, you know, a Von Eric got the hot tag and he was coming in and he was ready to clean house and he was ready to take out all the heels and, and, and try to pick up the win for the match. But the most distinct sound from that crowd at that show in, in 84 on May the 6th was when Kerry Von Eric backslide Ric Flair and rolled him up for the championship. You couldn't hear anyone. I mean, they had... Um, uh, you know, the announcer for world class, um, I forget the guy's name. I'm sure it'll come up to me at a, at a later date. Um, 
And if those of you, yeah, I forget the guy's name, but he, older guy, Lance Mercer, right? There you go. He, you couldn't hear the, you couldn't hear him make the call when Carrie won the title. You, all you heard was these girls screaming. It was wild. It was amazing. And when they, they, they shot the camera to the people in the crowd, you see people crying. You see people cheering. You know, those people at that show felt a loss when David died. And, you know, months later, they have this memorial. And they, you know, they felt like their hometown boy, Carrie Von Erich, you know, won the championship like a state championship you know it was in football it was it was a big deal it was major and when you had all the other von eric brothers jumping in the ring and other wrestlers and um you know the you, you you see um you know like i said even the brothers some of the brothers were crying like it was truly a a heartwarming storybook moment that moment wouldn't last very long because um Kerry Von Erich would lose the championship 18 days later to Ric Flair in Yokohama, Japan. And Kerry's uh, uh, mental state um, had been in question going into that show if he was on the up and up. And what I mean by that was, was, you know, if he wasn't abusing uh, prescription medication, if he wasn't fucked up. Um, but nonetheless, um, he he brought his A game with Ric Flair, and I'm sure Ric Flair helped in making that happen. And we were we were given a magical moment in wrestling history. Um, and there had been other great stadium shows from the Parade of Champions in Texas um, under the World Class Championship Wrestling banner. Um, Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams lost a hair match to the Von Erichs at the Cotton Bowl and got got their head shaved. Um, we saw. Um, we saw the, I believe we saw the um, the Midnight Express and the Fantastics have some great classics at the at the uh, the Cotton Bowl. Uh, Bruiser Brody and Abdullah the Butcher. Um, even before this initial parade of champions in May 6, 1984, I think Fritz von Erich had his retirement match against King Kong Bundy at Texas Stadium um, in front of a, a very large crowd at the time, not as big as the uh, the. The, the David Von Erich Memorial Show. But, um, yeah, those are just some of the um, the, the early uh, memories of stadium wrestling. Um, another promotion that, uh, that, that, had a, um, that had some big stadium wrestling moments was um, Jim Crockett Promotions and the AWA when they brought us Super Clash 1985. Um, the event was promoted by the AWA. It was billed as their flagship super card and the biggest event of the year just a few months after WrestleMania. Um, the, the inaugural event was held at Comiskey Park in Chicago on September 28th, 1985, and the show drew a paid attendance of 20,347, although it was announced 25,000 people were in attendance. Um, it was, like I said, co-promoted by the National Wrestling Alliance and World Class Championship Wrestling to compete with the WWF's increasing national presence and popularity. Um, the jointly promoted venture was known as Pro Wrestling USA. Reportedly, promoters Vern Gagne, Jim Crockett, um, disputed the live gate for the show with Crockett claiming 288 grand and Gagne claiming 200,000 was made. And due to a money dispute, several NWA stars set to appear on Gagne's upcoming AWA events were pulled, with some cards then being canceled altogether. Um, this is very interesting here. Um, the, 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 the card for this show is... Um, 
is, is rather interesting. Some of the names that you see on here, for instance, uh, Steven Regal uh, defeated Brad Ringens for the AWA World Light Heavyweight Championship to open that bout. Um, late great Sherry Martell defended her AWA Women's Championship over Candy Devine. I believe Candy Devine was a, um, a wrestler for uh, Glow, Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. This is an interesting one. Mill Mascaris defeated Buddy Roberts for the IWA World Heavyweight Championship. Um, Six-man tag team match saw Greg Gagne, Scott Hall, and Kurt Henning defeat Ray Stevens, Nick Bockwinkel, and Larry Zabisco. We had a little person's match, or um, as they build it, a NWA World Midgets Championship match. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but, uh, you know, at the, t the, at the time, the the... the, the the term midget wasn't deemed offensive. Uh, Little Tokyo defeated Little T to keep his NWA World Midgets Championship. Um, Jumbo Tatsura, if I pronounce that correctly, Giant Baba and Tenru defeated Harley Race, Bill Irwin, and Scott Irwin in a six-man tag team match for the Asian six-man tag team championship. I never knew that was a thing. I never knew there was an Asian six-man tag team championship. I'm sure that wouldn't go over well in uh, 2019. For the World Class Championship Wrestling Texas Heavyweight Championship, Kerry Von Erich pinned gorgeous Jimmy Garvin. Um, NWA World Six-Man Tag Team title, not, not to be confused with the Asian Six-Man Tag Team titles, saw the Russian team of Crusher Khrushchev, Ivan Koloff, and Nikita Koloff defeat the Crusher, Dick the Bruiser, and Baron Von Rasky. We saw Jerry Blackwell defeat Kamala in a body slam match for $10,000. Probably the match that I most remember from this event was the Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal, defeating the fabulous Freebirds, Michael Hayes and Terry Gordy, by disqualification for the AWA World Tag Team Championship. Sergeant Slaughter defeated Boris Zukov for the AWA Americas Championship. A lot of titles here. A lot of titles here. And, and while, I, while I'm discussing that, you know, people in 2019 complain that, oh, there's too many belts in wrestling, mainly WWE. And yes, that is true. But I don't think we heard all the wrestling purists in 1985, you know, cry an outrage that um, this show is heavy on championships. Because if you want to go back here, we have how many championships? We got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 11 title matches on a 13 match card. Okay. So, uh, yeah, there's some, there's some hypocrisy there. That's for sure. But, uh, moving on the NWA world heavyweight title saw Ric Flair defend it successfully over Magnum TA. And this was the time period, I believe in the Ric Flair Magnum TA storyline where, um, Matt, they were beginning the push for Magnum, and Magnum was going to be like the big star for Jim Crockett Promotions. Um, and then the main event of this show saw Rick Martel fight Stan Hansen to a double countout for the AWA World Heavyweight Championship. Um, you know, this, this you can definitely find this event on WWE Network. I've seen it on there before in the AWA section. Um, I have not watched this event in whole, but I'll tell you this much, though. I'm sure the Flair Magnum TA is a great match, and I have watched the Road Warriors Freebird match, and that's some really good stuff. But um, be on the lookout on WWE Network for this event. Another um, big uh, tour a stadium setting that took place was the great American bash tour in 1986. Um, 
this began as a stadium tour uh, where they would play a lot of stadiums in the South, in the Carolinas and, and Virginia and in Georgia. Um, and there was a different main event each night. It wasn't like the, the regular live event format back in the day where you ran the same main event in different towns because it was, you know, the territorial system, the TV coverage didn't reach from state to state or certain regions. So this was rather interesting because this, this tour was, um, like I said, memorable for the fact that there were different main events each night, like the Road Warriors against the Russians, Ric Flair and Ricky Morton in a steel cage. Um, you go back and find it on WWE Network, you could probably find it in the Ric Flair collection, one of his collections. Uh, he wrestles Ricky Morton at the Great American Bash in Charlotte uh, in a steel cage match for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Um, yeah, this tour in 86 had around 13 shows around the south and eastern parts of the country. Um, this was a uh, this was a very successful tour um, for for wrestling standards at that time. Um, if you like I said, if you want to check out a great match, check out Ricky Morton, Ric Flair steel cage. This is also memorable for Ric Flair's entrance to the uh, to the ring as the um, the local Charlotte news. Channel 9 brought their helicopter and brought Flair to the, 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 the baseball field, and they rolled out a red carpet, and Flair came out of the helicopter and walked down the aisle against Morton. Now, um, interesting little tidbit here about this match. During my time on the Ken Reedy show, Ken and I got to interview Ricky Morton. Uh, we had met Ricky Morton at an indie show um, in New Jersey during WrestleMania weekend in 2013. And I asked Ricky if he wanted to do an interview, and he was—he he obliged. And we we, we, we spoke on the phone uh, briefly before um, <clears throat> the interview uh, when we when we aired the show. And uh, Ricky said, um, "Ricky, R Ricky said he goes. He ba we basically we talked, and he says I'm going to talk about my career, all the good stuff. Um, and you know, is there anything in particular you would like for me to?" Uh, to, to discuss. And I said, I said, you know, if you feel comfortable, why don't you tell us about something that you, that you haven't told many people. And he agreed to it, which I was surprised because normally guys like that, they like to keep that stuff, you know, close to the vest. So Ricky told a story about where, um, in the buildup to the match with him and flair, um, they did an angle where they took out Robert Gibson and then they broke Ricky Morton's nose legitimately. Uh, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, Ric Flair, J.J. Dillon, the four horsemen took out Ricky Morton and broke his nose. And I believe like the, the Omni in Atlanta. And they did an injury angle where they, you know, took out Robert Gibson and management within Jim Crockett promotion. Um, and Ricky Morton alluded to that. Uh, it was conversations he had with Jim Crockett as well as Dusty Rhodes alluded to um, the fact that the match with Flair in the cage at the Great American Bash Tour in Charlotte was going to be the night that he was going to receive the World Heavyweight Championship. And when he asked what was going to happen to him and Robert as a team, they told him that they didn't really have any plans for Robert Gibson and eventually Robert was going to just kind of either move down the card or they were going to let him go. And Ricky Morton put a stop to that and said, well, I don't want to win the title. He goes, you're not going to fire my, you're not going to fire my partner. You're not going to fire him. Um, you know, how's he going to feed his family? What's he going to do? Um, him and I've been tagging for years. And uh, 
Lo and behold, um, they went with a different finish, and Ricky and Robert ended up staying together. Ironically, a few years later in WCW, they did split up Ricky and Robert, but that was because Robert had an injury, and they still needed to do something with Ricky Morton when he became Richard Morton, a part of the, uh, the, the, the York Foundation, along with Alexandria York, Terrence Taylor, and uh, Thomas Rich. Uh, otherwise known as Wildfire Tommy Rich for, for some of you uh, Mid-Atlantic wrestling fans out there. But um, anyhow, so, yeah, that was a pretty cool story when he told us that. I was I, I, I felt like I'd gotten the scoop. He's told that story in later years on different podcasts, but um, that's pretty interesting. Imagine in that stadium that night if Ricky Morton walked out of that steel cage with the NWA World Heavyweight Championship over Ric Flair. Imagine what his career would have been like. Imagine the pop that place would have gotten because – um, I went back and watched that match recently, and it was a hell of a match. Um, out in the middle of July in the hot summer down south in Charlotte, North Carolina, in a filled baseball stadium, and these two guys are just, you know, they're giving it to each other left and right. They're leaving it all out there. Um, you know, blood coming on the, down the face of Ricky Morton. Um, this was a, uh, a classic, to say the least. A lot of people talk about Ric Flair's matches with Dusty. They talk about his matches with Steamboat, even Sting, Hogan. And they're all great matches. Don't get me wrong. But go out of your way to find Ric Flair, Ricky Morton from the Great American Bash in 1996 in uh, Charlotte, I believe. I want to say it was Charlotte, North Carolina at a... Um, at a, uh, a stadium show. So, um, yeah, you could check that out. The, the Great American Bash Tour was also famous for um, hosting the War Games matches. The War Games would headline some of these big stadium shows. And if you go on the WWE Network under the War Games collection, you'll see a couple of stadium shows that took place, I believe, at the Orange Bowl in Miami and... Uh, I want to say the Cotton Bowl, maybe in Texas. No, not the Cotton Bowl. Um, uh, a, a rather large stadium in the um, the Memphis, Tennessee area, I should say. I forget the name of it, but they hosted a few war games. Um, the commentary's not the, the sound isn't uh, the sounds on. You could hear the action, but there's no commentary to the match. Um, so that's pretty cool. Uh, you know, the horsemen. You know, pretty much being the blueprint for the heels in the War Games concept. Dusty was the one that created it. Uh, we're going to talk about War Games uh, later on this year on Kicking Out of Two. I look forward to that. Um, but those matches were were, were very memorable, um, and those stadiums were were were, were pretty filled. Um, at least the 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 bleacher area of those stadiums. What was interesting about those stadium shows from Jim Crockett was they didn't put too many people on the floor. They had everyone kind of watching from the stadium, from the from the, inside the stadium in the bleachers. Um, they may have had like five, six rows of fans um, surrounding the ring, but um, for the most part, everyone um, had the same view in the stadium, um, in the bleachers, uh, the lower bowl and the upper bowl, especially in Miami at the Orange Bowl. So um, that War Games was, I believe, headlined by. Flair, Arn, Tully, um, Luger, and I believe um, a Ray Trailer was under a mask. Um, I forget what they called. I don't know if he was executioner or if he would. I forget what his gimmick was in the mask. But it was like a one night thing. They put him in a mask um, to wrestle against uh, um, Dusty, the Road Warriors. Uh, Nikita and I believe Paul Ellering was a part of that. Um, 
Yeah, and it's one of the, it's one of the 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 underrated war games. They talk about the '87 war games from the Omni in Atlanta being the first one, and that's great. Don't get me wrong, it's unbelievable. Um, but some of these other hidden gems war games you can find on the network, man, there's some really good stuff. The sound's not on. Uh, you don't get the commentary. You can kind of really feel the action. It's it, it was it's an interesting presentation, but um, you know, to fill a stadium night after night for like 30 or 40 nights are close to filling a stadium for 30 or 40 nights with the war games, man. That's, that, that's just awesome. That, that, that is so cool. And I don't think you could do that, um, on a regular basis, um, in today's wrestling, whether you're WWE or AEW or ring of honor, or new Japan, no one, I don't think can do what Jim Crockett promotions did back in the, the mid to, you know, early to mid eighties when it came to those stadium shows, they were, they were definitely um, a sight to see those stadium shows also consisted of a lot of Crockett cups. Um, you saw the road warriors win the, I think one of the early Crockett cups from, uh, from Charlotte. I want to say it was on the same night that Ricky Morton uh, and Ric Flair wrestled for the, uh, the, the NWA world title. You saw um, uh, who else won a Crockett cup. I want to say dusty and Magnum. Uh, one of those stadium shows as well. I could be mistaken. I'm just kind of, you know, talking out loud loosely here, but those were some memorable moments that were held in an outdoor setting. Um, another promotion that held a, a, a fair amount of the, um, the outdoor stadium shows in the early eighties was the WWF, the worldwide wrestling federation. And they were called the showdown at Shea, Shea stadium. Um, I wasn't alive to, to, to see any of these shows, but I've watched some of the stuff back on the WWE network. And, um, you know, it's definitely a site when you go back and you watch, um, uh, you know, the, the ring is like in the middle of center field of the old Chase Stadium. I'm a Mets baseball fan, so it was, it's also kind of cool to see that it was held in the baseball stadium. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe they, the WWWF at one, they held three showdowns at Shea. But one of those shows, I believe they either came close to or barely broke the record of when the Beatles performed at Shea Stadium, which is like a huge thing. Um, the first event was held in 1972, the second one in 76, and the third one and last one in 1980. The showdown at, seven, uh, at, at Shea in 1972 took place on September the 30th from Flushing, New York, and the attendance was 22,508 people. Um, the, 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 the memorable matches on this card... Um, Probably, probably the only real memorable match at this time was Pedro Morales um, and Bruno Sammartino competing for the WWWF World Heavyweight Championship to a curfew draw. And um, for those of you that aren't familiar with the term curfew draw, curfew um, draw, it, well, a curfew when it comes to um, sporting events, um, you know, concerts, things like that. There's like state curfews. Um, you know, I know in the state of Connecticut, state curfews used to be like 11 o'clock, 1130. I used to work at an amphitheater and, um, you know, performing acts used to have to uh, be off the stage and be done performing by like 11 or 1130. Um, there was some exceptions sometimes, but for the most part, you had to be done by 11 or 1130. It wasn't going past. Um, 
wasn't going past midnight that's for sure like i said a few exceptions here and there so this was a i i'm I'm assuming new york's curfew was at a certain time period i don't know what exactly it was at that time in 1972 but the match went 75 minutes and five seconds long and pedro morales and bruno san martino fought to a draw this was during a time period when um you know pedro was the champion bruno was the challenger and both guys were the two top baby faces in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation territory. Bruno had the connection with the Italian Americans, and Pedro Morales was the the face of the Latin American community, especially in the New York area. And those two ethnicities dominated the New York market in professional wrestling at that time. They probably still do to this day. Um, and to see, you know, who was the better of the two uh, between the 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 Latin Pat Pedro Morales and the Italian. Bruno San Martino, both two blue-collar, hard-working, lovable guys having the crowd split in half. That's probably one of the very first babyface versus babyface matchups. And I know those matchups don't don't happen very often, and they come few and far between because it's a concept that, if done right, can 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 be very successful, but it's got to be done with the right guys, um, and it's got to be done under the right circumstances. It can't just you can't just throw two good guys out there and have them wrestle and and hope for the best. Um, you know, it's one of those situations that doesn't get used very rarely in wrestling. So to see you know these two in the main event of this show um, at that time period in that time period of wrestling, it's it's a pretty big deal. You know, so um, if you you can go back, I'm sure you can find that on the WWE Network under the Bruno San Martino collection as well. Uh, Pedro Morales um, in a curfew draw, 75 minutes and five seconds. The second showdown at Shea took place June 25th, 1976, with 32,000 people in attendance. Um, this event is a rather interesting event because this event was simulcasted with. Um, with the um, the the Muhammad Ali Antonio Anoki match that took place from Tokyo, Japan. Um, Jim Ross told a story about how, as in his early days in the business, he took a loan out from the bank to um, host the screening of this event um, with um, the, the the matches that took place at the stadium at Shea, and then the main event with Ali and Inoki in Tokyo. And he lost his ass financially on that uh, because at that time period, um, people in the uh, everyone in America knew who Muhammad Ali was. Many people didn't know who Antonio Noki was in 76 um, mainstream casual wrestling fans. And in the Oklahoma mid South area, uh, people didn't know. Um, many of these guys on the card in the WWF, with the exception of maybe Andre the Giant, there were a lot of matches that these people didn't really care about. JR had said in this in in his, this promotion of this event that he was helping promote, um, not many people attended because they didn't have an emotional attachment to the majority of the guys. If there were guys from Mid South on that card, I'm sure that they would have filled the place, but. Um, the only real recognizable names were Muhammad Ali and Andre the Giant. Um, this event headlined, there's basically three matches that really sold this event that people talk about to this day. One of them being the boxer versus wrestler match with Andre the Giant uh, defeating Chuck Wepner, the Bayonne Bleeder, um, which the, 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 the Rocky movies were based around his life, which is pretty cool. Um, and Andre defeating Chuck Webner in a minute 17 of the third round. Um, 
Also on this card was Bruno Sammartino defeating Stan Hansen by a countout for the WWF World Heavyweight Championship. This was Bruno's return because it was not too long before this, or maybe even a year before this, I should say, that Stan Hansen attacked Bruno Sammartino and broke his neck in Madison Square Garden. And I talked about it earlier, Bruno being a representative of the Italian-American community in New York. Um, he was beloved, and when Hansen broke his neck and put him out of action, Hansen at that time in 76 was public enemy number one. Um, he was a made guy after that. Even though he didn't intend to break his neck, um, it was purely an accident. He was a made guy, and they turned this into a big major match, and Bruno got the victory via a countout here. Um, and then, of course, the main event, Antonio Inoki and Muhammad Ali, they fought to a draw. The match was shown to the stadium crowd via a closed-circuit television on the big screen. Um, I've, heard, I've not watched this. I've never seen it before. I don't even know if there's footage of it, to be quite honest with you. I wonder if WWE Network has it, uh, because I don't, think, um, I don't think they do. But um, in, uh, in 76, on this date... Um, they fought to a draw, and it's regarded as probably um, the hype was great, but the delivery sucked because both camps didn't really want to cooperate with each other. You know, there was an ego thing, even with Ali as a boxer. Uh, you know, he was recognizably known worldwide um, for his his ability to talk and his accolades in boxing, as well as um, some of the things he did in pop culture and society when he, you know going from Cassius Clay to changing his name to Muhammad Ali and, um, you know, skipping the, 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 the draft to go into the war. Um, he was a lightning rod for controversy. And, uh, you know, his, his match with Anoki was not anything to write home about. The two of them really, it was, a, it, it was the definition of contrasting styles. Ali boxed, Anoki wrestled. If, you know, Ali was, um, was, was, was on his feet, he was, landed some punches but they didn't really have much of an effect on Anoki and if Anoki was on the ground um, he had Ali twisted up like a pretzel it was very um, uh, one dimensional uh, didn't really there were, there was no there was there was no storytelling in the match each guy was just showing off the best of what they could do so um, the, the 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 match fell short and something of that kind wouldn't take place for, for, for quite some time. Um, and then the, the third and final one, which is probably the most memorable of the, um, <clears throat> of the, uh, the, the three was August the 9th, 1980, almost 40 years, um, to the date, uh, or, or for, coming up on the 40 year anniversary next month or uh, the 39 year anniversary, I should say, um, showdown at Shea Flushing, New York, 36,295 people, um, on this event, uh, this, th this event is most memorable for, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the Andre the Giant Hulk Hogan singles match when Hulk Hogan was a bad guy being managed by classy Freddie Blassie um, and Bruno Sammartino and Larry Zabisco inside of a steel cage. Uh, the history behind Bruno and Larry was that Bruno was um, he was kind of out of action. He was doing the color commentary with Vince for all star wrestling and Zabisco was kind of like his protege and Zabisco wanted to 
Sabisco wanted to make a name for himself and further himself on the card, and he tried to test Bruno in like an in like a, a, an exhibition match, and Bruno schooled him. And he was upset that he was embarrassed, and he would attack Bruno with a steel chair. And Zabisco uh, basically took the spot of public enemy number one in the New York area um, from Stan Hansen, and it led to this cage match. And uh, you know, the, the Bruno escaped from the cage, defeating Larry Zabisco. Um, other matches on this card that um, I was I was uh, looking at by doing some research: Bob Backlund and Pedro Morales teamed up and defeated. The Wild Samoans, Afa and Sika, in a two out of three falls match for the WWF World Tag Team Championship. Uh, I did not know that Backlund and Morales were the champions at one point. That's pretty interesting. Tony Atlas defeated Ken Patera by countout for the Intercontinental Championship. Uh, we saw, like I said, Hogan and um, Andre the Giant. Antonio Inoki, who was on the, 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 the previous showdown at Shea via a um, closed circuit uh, television defended the NWF heavyweight championship over Larry Sharp, pretty boy Larry Sharp. Um, Tatsumi Fujinami defeated Chavo Guerrero for the WWF Junior Heavyweight Championship. Was there like equivalent to um, the, uh, the 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 cruiserweight light heavyweight championship? Greg Gagne was on this card, defeating Rick McGraw. Uh, Dominic Danucci, famous for training Mick Foley, defeated Baron Mikkel Cicluna. Um, the Fabulous Mula defeated, or Fabulous Mula and Beverly Shade defeated Candy Malloy and Peggy Lee. And then uh, another notable name here, Ivan Putski, defeating Johnny Rods. Um, like I said, this is probably the most memorable of the 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 two showdowns at Shea. Um, and these are some, like I said, some of the earlier incarnations of these stadium, these outdoor stadium shows, but um, stuff that I didn't get a chance to witness because I wasn't alive at the time, or if I was, I didn't remember that these took place. But um, I want to talk a little bit about um, my first memories of watching on television outdoor stadium wrestling events. Um, you can go back to SummerSlam 1992. Um, the, uh, the held from Wembley Stadium in 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 the United Kingdom. Uh, we'll actually be covering that in a few weeks. Uh, a special uh, SummerSlam '92 watch party that you all voted for in the poll. Um, so that's going to be a lot of fun watching that. But I'm not going to get too much into that. But that was the first time I watched outdoor stadium wrestling, and. The sight of it taking place during the day and it being filled and you had that long aisle that the guys walked down um, and then it going from day to nighttime, like over the course of the show. Some some truly awesome stuff. That was when I that was my earliest memory of watching it on TV and being like, wow, like that's cool. Um, And then we go to um, probably the show that really, really. put a stamp of approval on my affection for outdoor stadium wrestling was WrestleMania nine, uh, from Caesar's palace on April the 4th, 1993. Um, and I think what really made it for me was the Roman Coliseum theme when they had all the guys dressed up in the togas and they took this outdoor stadium and they, they, they transformed it into the Roman empire, the Coliseum with the columns and the, the color scheme with the yellow and the gold. And, um, 
it was it, the the water fountains and they had the entrances with the Vestal Virgins and the elephant and uh, Macho Man and Bobby Heenan coming backwards out on the camel. Um, I still, you know, people still think that's the worst WrestleMania of all time. And, you know, you can argue that till, you know, the cows come home and that's fine. I don't think it is. Um, as a kid, I just remember how much fun it was to watch it because it was in an outdoor setting and because of the Roman Coliseum theme. And I think that's what really made it for me as a wrestling fan that, that loved, you know, the outdoor setting of a wrestling event. Like it was happening. Like I had to be there. I had to see this. You know, I didn't see this on pay-per-view, by the way. Um, I found out from a friend who told me what took place. And then I watched Monday night raw where they showed the still shots from the event taking place outdoors. And I was like, Oh my God. I was like, I got to get to this. And I asked my parents if I can get the replay. They said no, but when it came to the video store, when Blockbuster Video at WrestleMania 9, I made sure um, I was there, one of the first ones to rent it. Um, and watching it on, on video, I was still, even though w- we knew it was going to happen, I was still enthralled. Uh, my buddy Dean Yelanis, um, my oldest friend, go back since I was like seven years old, six or seven years old. And uh, Dean... Uh, Dean says to me, um, you know, why do you want to watch this? Why, why do we have to rent this? You already know what happened. Hogan won. He won the belt. Like, we've seen this. And I was like, no, you may have seen it. I didn't see it. And I want to see it again. Or I want to see it for the first time. And uh, Dean couldn't help but be enjoyed um, with couldn't help but enjoy himself when it came to this show and he still talks about it to this day he's like remember when we used to come to my house and we'd go to the video store and you'd always want to rent wrestlemania 9 i just loved the the way it looked the presentation the production of of the roman coliseum theme it was like i said the stamp of approval that wrestle that that, that wrestling events in an outdoor setting were just so fun to watch um and then later that year, they had uh, WWF put a presented a um, a show when uh, on the USS Intrepid in New York City, where uh, it was the you know the the Stars and Stripes Body Slam Challenge. Who can body slam Yokozuna? Um, and I remember seeing clips of that on WWF television as a kid and, you know, seeing the, the, the outdoor element on the 4th of July, all these different wrestlers, Randy Savage, Bob back and the Steiners crush. You had f- former professional football players and celebrities trying to body slam Yoko. And then Lex Luger comes off this helicopter and marches down to the ring. And, uh, Luger at the time, um, was a bad guy. He was the narcissist, Lex Luger, and he was associated with Bobby the Brain Heenan. Even though Heenan wasn't the manager, he still had an association with some guys on TV. And Luger coming out, decked out in his red, white, and blue, takes his shirt off and body slams Yokozuna to this thunderous pop. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was truly an awesome moment um, as a kid, especially at being on the Intrepid. Uh, they and for many many years, um, I was kind of hoping that WWE would put something out where they showed that whole event in its entirety. And they recently did last year on the network. If you go under the hidden gem section, you can find that entire event um, of the Yokozuna Body Slam Challenge and then Lex Luger's you know, stars and stripes grassroots campaign to his championship match at SummerSlam against Yokozuna that year. So you can find that on the WWE network hidden gems. Um, 
And in both of those both of those outdoor settings, or I should say all three of them, when I'm talking about SummerSlam, WrestleMania 9, and the USS Intrepid, they were fortunate enough to have uh, very good weather. And they, they, they didn't have to worry about the elements of Mother Nature. Um, whereas there's been incidences in wrestling history, and not many, which we've been lucky, in outdoor settings where the elements of weather have had an effect or could have had an effect on the presentation of the show. Um, the earliest memory of <clears throat> uh, inclement weather at a pro wrestling event was an episode of WCW Saturday night. It was simulcast. It was the matches were taped from center stage in Atlanta with Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan. But um, Eric Bischoff and Dusty Rhodes were doing the commentary live from the Charlotte Motor Speedway in Charlotte, North Carolina on May the 27th, 1995. And it rained the entire time downpour. And it made for some interesting Wrestling. Um, this show is not on the WWE Network. You're going to have to Google it and YouTube it and find it. But um, like I said, half the matches were in Atlanta. Half the matches were live in Charlotte. They had a Slim Jim challenge where the winner would face Arn Anderson for the the world television title at the upcoming Bash at the Beach pay-per-view, Bash at the Beach 1995. Um, and so you saw a lot of rain. You saw a lot of mishaps. Um I remember as, as a kid watching this, the Nasty Boys wrestled in a match and one of them tried to, you know, climb up to the second rope and had trouble getting up there and slipping. And um, it just made for a it was an interesting, unique visual. But from a safety standpoint, it wasn't it, it definitely wasn't safe to be going out there and putting on these matches. And like it didn't let up. I mean, you know, Bischoff and Dusty were soaking wet, soaking wet. You know, microphones were wet. I'm surprised that nobody got electrocuted. <laughs> um, you know, it was it was definitely an interesting visual. Um, I hope that they they maybe just put that show up on the Hidden Gems portion of the network. It seems like lately when I cover some certain topics on this show. Um, I'm not saying that people from WWE listen, um, but it seems like coincidentally that some of these topics that I discuss or some of these events that take place, all of a sudden they pop up on WWE Network or they're highlighted um, in an advertisement for WWE Network. So I find that rather interesting. So maybe in the Hidden Gems section, we might get an episode, uh, that episode of WCW Saturday Night from um, May the 27th, 1995. Um, personally, um, I've been to a few outdoor wrestling events myself and, um, you know, a couple of WrestleManias and I've even been to some indie shows that have been outdoors. I went to, before I get to my, my WrestleMania experiences, um, the first time I ever watched a wrestling event outdoors, um, in person was in 2003, uh, and I've kind of talked about my experiences on this show before, um, on the independent level, as I used to set up the ring and do ring crew and security for um, Assault Championship Wrestling, which was owned by Jason Knight, former uh, ECW original. And so he was a, a local Connecticut guy in the Waterbury area. And I was living with a girl at the time in Waterbury. And there used to be this biker bar called Riders Cafe. Um, and they had like a big outdoor um, 
like patio deck area and um it was all gravel and rocks and um assault championship wrestling used to run their summer shows out there if the weather was good and those used to be a lot of fun because you'd like sit in like chairs or like picnic benches or tables and you you know you had cheap draft beer for like three bucks or whatever and you're out there in the hot sun and the 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 action was pretty fun it kind of reminded me a lot of the um the WCW Sturgis rallies that they did, the Hog Wilds and the Road Wilds, and I'll get into those in a little bit. But um, that was my first experience ever watching a wrestling show outdoors. And then years later, I would end up going to my first outdoor WrestleMania at WrestleMania 24 in Orlando in 2008. Um, and I just remember being so excited walking in, and you know, they took that stadium, which was basically in the middle of a shithole, and that stadium was old. It was like built i want to say like in the 60s or the 70s and they took that stadium and they turned it into a wrestlemania worthy arena with the production um doing some research wwe spent over a million dollars on production um almost half of that million dollars came in the form of pyrotechnics they spent 400 400,000 on pyrotechnics which is crazy um but being it's florida and um you know the the weather held up um, it, uh, it, it made for a, uh, aesthetically a more appealing WrestleMania and wrestling event itself. Uh, I believe Michael Hayes on the, the legends of wrestling said that they spent $30,000 on palm trees, palm trees to, and it's for temporary, temporary purposes for one night only. You were decorating this, this stadium to make it look WrestleMania worthy. I think Kevin Nash was also on that round table. And he said, he goes, he goes, it's like you're cleaning up the house for your in-laws and you don't even like them. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that WrestleMania, I remember being there for it and, uh, they were handing out rain ponchos because the weather forecast said there was a slight chance of showers early on. So they were giving out um, yellow WrestleMania uh, ponchos, and I grabbed one just in case. And the opening match was a battle royal to determine who was going to face the ECW champion later in the evening. Kane won that. And then after the battle royal, it started to drizzle. And so myself... My girlfriend at the time, we all thought, oh, shit, like, and even people in the row, like, this is going to be, this is going to be miserable if it's going to rain all show long. I mean, I, I was still going to have a good time, but I'm sure the rain would have had an effect on me in, the, in that regard. And so when it came time to it, it started to rain as John Legend saying the, um, the America, the beautiful, and then. The opening match was of the main card was Finley and JBL in the Belfast Brawl, and it stopped raining, and then it got warmer, and it was like around 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. So the, um, the, the rain held off, which we were lucky enough. I was very fortunate. Um, fast forward five years later to 2013, and uh i was at wrestlemania 29 at MetLife stadium in east rutherford new jersey headlined by uh, john cena on the rock for the wwe title and the opening match was miz and wade barrett for the intercontinental championship and it started to rain during the match now you probably couldn't tell on tv because they had a lot of ca- tight camera shots and they didn't pan out to the crowd and you really couldn't see but um it wasn't heavy rain but it was noticeable uh to say the least and so um 
that was ironically enough as it stopped raining Miz got the victory and we all joked in the row in our row and said that um like uh, Miz's victory uh prevented the rain from 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 continuing to pour down because it was cold that day um for those of you that you know uh remember my time on the Ken Reedy show um Ken's girlfriend Michelle producer Michelle used to uh give us weather updates she was the weather creeper she still uses the hashtag every once in a while um to remind me uh because i didn't because i was not looking forward to this wrestlemania being out in the cold because the year before we were treated to the sun and the sand of miami and we were spoiled the next year we come back home to the northeast area and we get you know a balmy windy 55 degrees um Waiting in line at the porta potty for 45 minutes to take a leak. That was the longest, coldest wait I ever had to, to endure for the bathroom. Um, so luckily, we were fortunate enough that the rain um, held off for the main show. Uh, but it still got cold. It was still windy. It felt like I was at a football game. I mean, you know, sweatshirt, hat, gloves. Like I bundled up for this, and it was. It was an okay show. I wasn't impressed with it. Um, I think the weather had an effect on it. Um, I think we were definitely spoiled from the year before. But those are some of the um, those are some of the most memorable um, potential uh, rainouts in outdoor stadium wrestling history. And a few, and I was a part of a few of them. So that's pretty cool. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the presentation. I, I briefly alluded to it. Um, when it came to WrestleMania nine, the production quality, I kind of talked about with WrestleMania 24, um, cosmetically what it looks like, you know, in an outdoor stadium setting, um, you know, going to WrestleMania 28, for instance, in Miami, I'll bring, I'll, I'll talk about that. Um, how they had the palm trees and the color scheme was like orange and teal and, um, the, 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 the big columns to hold up the scaffolding that had like the, the canopy over the ring were like, looked like you know the stems of palm trees and um or the 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 shaft or whatever you want to call them i shouldn't even use that term but anyhow um the 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 presentation the color scheme of it it just made that show much more exciting i had a tendency from time to time especially when i would go to those big stadium shows to like look around and just look at all the people um, sometimes I would get lost in it. I wouldn't even watch a match, and uh, I'd feel bad later on. And be like, why didn't I pay attention to the match? This is what I came for. I didn't came to. I didn't come to stare at the, the fucking people in the middle of nowhere up in the the, the balcony. Uh, but I would be enthralled with like the production and the presentation of it, um, and especially being outdoors, um, seeing like the planes fly over. Uh, we were close to you know Miami International Airport that year, and there were planes that were flying over coming by. And, uh, you know, during the pay-per-view and the, 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 the pyrotechnics being outdoors, it lends itself uh, the opportunity to do more pyrotechnics and, and, and offer a better presentation to your show. Um, one of the main reasons why I love WrestleMania 28 so much, not because of some of the matches that were on that card, but because it was outdoors, it was in Miami, and it just had this, like, very, like, big Super Bowl feel to it. It went started at 7 p.m. Eastern time in the daylight, and it just transformed into the, 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 the blue skies got darker and darker, and the stars were, were, were lit up, and... Um, the matches got better and better and more important, and it was just it was it was truly a sight. When I think of WrestleMania, I the, the WrestleManias I've attended, that one is probably the the my most favorite because of the build up going into it. 
uh, Rock and Austin. I felt like I was witnessing history. It was The Rock's first match back in a singles match at WrestleMania in his hometown of Miami against the measuring stick of WWE, John Cena. It was pretty fucking cool. Seeing that Hell in the Cell with Triple H and Undertaker and Shawn Michaels as the referee, that was so cool. The 18 seconds with Daniel Bryan and, and Sheamus, like, and being there all weekend and seeing all these things culminate from the weekend into this show and being there in that stadium, man. It's an experience I'll never forget. Uh, but the production quality aspect of these stadium shows is very important because, like I mentioned earlier, you see a stadium full of people, 70,000 people, and you see all these big lights and the pyrotechnics and the staging and the lighting and the, 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 the whole production of it. And you're an outsider and you're watching this for the first time. You're like, God damn, that's a big deal. I got to watch that. I got to check that out. And I think that's what WWE does best when it comes to their um their presentations of wrestlemania like the 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 allure of wrestlemania in itself in the last several years especially since you know us rosenblues have gone to quite a few was what's the staging gonna look like what's the set gonna look like indoors or outdoors and 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 how is it going to translate onto television like you know i i'll never forget like my my brother He's gone to both my brothers have gone to quite a few WrestleManias and they will, you know, like clockwork every year. The first thing they do when they get in the stadium, they just take a look at the, the, the set and they take a picture and they post it on social media. And that's like one of the first things I do if I'm not watching it, um, I'll watch it at home and I'll be like, well, what's the set look like? What's the set look like? And you, you, you see it and you're like, you're enthralled. You're like, wow, like you're at WrestleMania like this is WrestleMania. Um, and I think being outdoors lends itself a, a, a level of um, uh, prestige and importance to the presentation on TV. Um, one of the outdoor WrestleManias I wasn't fortunate enough to attend to, but I, I regard it as my favorite outdoor wrestling show that I watched on TV was WrestleMania 31 from Levi Stadium in California. Now, um, you know, California being out the West Coast, three hour time difference. I'm here on the East Coast. Uh, show starts at 7 o'clock here, Eastern Standard Time out there. Local time, it's 4 o'clock. And the majority of that show takes place during the day um, with the with the bright sun. And from what I was told through, you know, my brothers and some friends who attended, it was a hot day that day. You, you were cooking out there. But it was, that, that show was a lot of fun. Um, that show, top to bottom, is one of the best shows I've ever watched uh, with you know, the ladder match with Daniel Bryan, Rollins and Randy Orton. You had Sting and Triple H with the nostalgia of the NWO and DX, uh, Cena winning the U.S. title, The Rock and Ronda Rousey doing that stuff with the authority, the, the, the Brock Lesnar-Roman Reigns match with the Seth Rollins Money in the Bank cash-in. I mean, you go from day to night and that moment at the end in the main event as it's starting to get darker, it's almost like that Super Bowl fourth quarter feel where if like there's a Super Bowl on the West Coast the majority of the game is played during the day but once you get to that fourth quarter man they put the they put the house lights on um, the, the the stars are lit up in the sky and you are looking at you know it, a, a big happening it's important you know it's the it's the fourth quarter big things are going to take place it's do or die and that's what that Wrestlemania felt like with Reigns and Lesnar at the end so um yeah, the, 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 the overall production, the lighting, the color schemes, I think are very important to the presentation of um, of being, uh, you know, in an outdoor setting for a professional wrestling event. Another th- another characteristic that I um, that I had I had 
read and heard during my research when it comes to outdoor stadium shows is the acoustics and how that has an effect on the performers. Um, and I've seen a lot of interviews with guys over the years, um, Edge, Michael Hayes, uh, uh, John Cena, a number of guys who have discussed rather, per, rather, um, they would rather perform um, in a closer indoor setting like a, a 15, 20,000 seat arena because the sound comes back out at you. You feel the audience, whereas opposed to you're in a stadium and you do something big, you may pop the first five, six, seven rows, but you don't really feel the audience. And on, on a number of occasions, I believe um, guys have said that, you know, they felt like that the audience wasn't there with them for the match. And then they go back and watch it on TV and they're like, Oh wow, they were there the whole time, but it's that sound that travels. You're going out into the heavens. So, um, I noticed that as a fan in being in those stadium shows, both indoor and outdoor, uh, where the, there'd be a situation in a match where a guy would get slammed and you could hear it, but it's not as deafening because of where you're sitting. You have to sit so close to really feel it. But it comes later, almost like you get like delayed reactions um, from the audience. And I can only imagine what it's like as a performer, you know, thinking that, you know, you're going to pop a crowd by doing something big from the 50 yard line. And you're about 75 yards away from the fans and the reaction comes late. So that's something else, too, that like you have to take into account, but also brings um it, it, it helps with the, the allure of the outdoor stadium wrestling shows. To some people, it's, it's not a good thing, but to others, like myself, um, it's, it, it's what makes the outdoor stadium wrestling experience. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, you know, as we're continuing this subject here of outdoor stadium wrestling experiences, I would be remiss if I didn't discuss WCW's attempt at outdoor wrestling stadium shows um the first one of its kind that i can remember um in the wcw era i'm not talking jim crockett promotions either because i brought that up earlier with the, the great american bash was uh wcw and new japan pro wrestling's joint effort of collision in korea in may of 1995 i want to say uh, may or june at some point, I forget what it was, but it was sometime in the spring of 1995, headlined by um, Ric Flair and Antonio Inoki. It was a two night wrestling um, and cultural event. Um, Inoki and some of the guys from New Japan helped set this up. And, um, you know, uh, if you want to hear some great stories about the, the things surrounding that event, uh, check out 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff, where he discusses his experience and how they set up that deal um, and how they went over there and, and performed and the, 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 the cultural differences between um, North Korea and the United States and what was taking place in North Korea at that time, um, as opposed to what goes on now in North Korea with the relationship they have with our country. So uh, it's very interesting, some of the stories Bischoff recounted. I will tell one story in particular um, it was so the, – the situation was very tense in the country um, with, with the Americans and the WCW guys. Uh, Bischoff, uh, according to uh, his recollections on his podcast, says that he didn't go to Turner or any of the, the, the Turner executives for permission to go over. They just went over and did it, um, and he brought a number of guys with them, and Ric Flair being one of them. Um, and so 
when they got to the airport, um, the North Korean government seized their passports and basically told them that you're going to be with us. And they were followed around by like a, a, a North a North Korean government official, their version of the Secret Service, I guess you could say, like it is the equivalent to us here in the United States, um, their version of a policeman, so to speak. So a lot of the American wrestlers and the Japanese wrestlers had um, had a uh, – a, uh, uh, someone from the North Korean uh, government following them around their every move, wherever they went. And Bischoff tells a story where it was one night he couldn't sleep and he likes to exercise and the hotel gym didn't have a bike or a treadmill. So he decided to go for a run um, in the, uh, the, the, the surrounding area and the streets and there was a flock of people chasing after him because they thought he was doing something illegal um, in that country at that time in that culture American men and I don't know if that's the case now but American men um, are looked at by the North Korean culture as like rapists and evil people um, Bischoff recounts a story that when he got into the limousine um, or the cab with Sonny Ono, who was once a manager in WCW, the government official looked at both of them and said, you will not rape our women. If you do, you will be in a lot of trouble. You will you will have to answer to us. And Bischoff and Ono, you know, obviously just shook their heads because they're in foreign territory. But they looked at they looked at each other like this is what it's like around here. Um, and so uh, the the. The, the, the situations that transpired throughout the course of this trip were very fascinating. Scott Norton, who was on the trip, um, was calling his wife from home, and uh, someone had his hotel room phone tapped. He was complaining about the conditions in North Korea, and he, was, he ended up being detained by the police and interrogated for hours on end um, because he was speaking poorly of the North Korean government and the current situations the conditions that he was that he was having to endure um so if you want to hear some fascinating stories about that state about that show that collision korea event um listen to 83 weeks with eric bischoff it's probably the best podcast that eric bischoff has done um since he's tagged up with conrad thompson uh just the stories were very fascinating and um you know I, i i i was i was left wanting more um what he did also entail in that podcast regarding the show itself was it was a two day event and they 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 garnered um, over one hundred and fifty thousand people at these shows and this the, the presentation that they had brought to the North Korean um, uh, country. Uh, they weren't ready for. They didn't really understand wrestling. They just kind of sat there and watched it. Um, you didn't really get a whole lot of reactions from what I understand. This event is not on the WWE Network. You're going to have to YouTube this one as well. But um, if you do ever find uh, some of the matches from this event, you'll notice that you know the action's good in the ring, but there's no reaction from the audience because the audience was very new to wrestling. It was, it was something that Bischoff described as... Um, if you didn't buy a ticket, you were forced to attend the event. That's that was the culture of the North Korean people at that time. You attended this event. You were forced to be there in many ways. So I found that very fascinating, and I thought that was something that uh, you know 
that was was important to bring up here when we're discussing these uh, these outdoor stadium shows because obviously in any kind of wrestling setting whether it's indoors outdoors whether it's a stadium you want to get a reaction because um, it makes the presentation um, it enhances the presentation when you're watching it not only in person but on TV and in this case. It didn't do anything, and that's probably one of the reasons why WWE doesn't have it on their network right now is because I don't think people will want to watch it. Um, but if they did like a documentary behind it and showed clips of it and stuff, I'm sure it would be um, something fascinating to, uh, to 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 watch. But um, yeah, that was one of the, the the early incarnations of stadium shows, outdoor events that WCW put together. Of course, you had the um, the 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 bash at the beach from Huntington beach that we discussed and watched on last week's show. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the matches held on the beach itself, that visual of seeing the ocean in the background with all kinds of people in their bathing suits and, you know, just a day at the beach and there's a wrestling ring in the middle of it. Like I thought that presentation was pretty cool. I remember as a kid watching WCW main event, which was like their live pre-show before the pay-per-view on TBS. And, you know, they had some preliminary matches take place on that show. And it was, you know, a bright sunny day in California um, in the middle of summer. And I was like, damn, I wanted to, not only do I want to be there, but I want to order it. And I remember, actually, I was at my grandparents' house um, in Florida that summer. Um, and I had, I didn't beg them hard enough, but I had asked them a few times, can we get this, can we get this, can we get this, you know, can we watch this, please, 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 you know. I'll give you my spending money to pay for it. And they were like, no, 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 you're not here to watch wrestling. Even though they, they did support my wrestling habit from time to time, but they, in this occasion, they didn't. Uh, but I just thought the overall look of it with, like, the guys walking down the boardwalk um, to the ring, the ring in the sand, um, you know, the, the beach theme, they had Baywatch. I just thought that was very cool. And we touched upon that last week on our, our Bash at the Beach 95 watch party, which you can find in the archives on our social media, SoundCloud, as well as Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network. Yes, that's a cheap plug, of course. Um, but they had, you know, WCW put that event out. Not the greatest event, but still cosmetically looking, it was like, damn, like, I want to be a part of that. I want to see that. Um their outdoor shows evolved. Uh, they they used to hold those big Sturgis bike rallies, um, you know, the Road Wild, the Hog Wild pay-per-views. Um, those events I didn't really get into as much. Um, some of the matches were good, but for the most part, it was very similar in terms of the um, – the atmosphere of the collision in Korea events. Um, you had these wrestling matches taking place in the middle of a motorcycle rally um, with a bunch of bikers who don't really watch the show. Um, you may get a few, but um, you know the, the show is free. You don't have to pay to go see it. You got a bunch of guys on motorcycles getting drunk, revving up their motorcycles. Um, those guys had a tendency to be very rowdy. Booker T told a story. He had an incident with an individual at one of those Sturgis bike rallies where um, they they referred to him as a very um, they 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 they. they they referred to him as a derogatory racial slur. They used the N word and, uh, you know, he felt very uncomfortable being there. Um, I don't know what was done. I don't remember what was done to, uh, in that situation, whether, uh, you know, um, he confronted the guy after, or if, you know, management 
took care of the situation, kicked the guy out, whatever, whatever the situation was. Um, it was, it was an uncomfortable situation for Booker T, but a lot of those guys in the interviews, when they talk about those Sturgis rallies, um, they, they hated them because there was no dressing rooms. You're in the black Hills of South Dakota. It's hot as dick outside. You got a whole bunch of drunk bikers throwing rocks and, and not really getting into the matches. Um, the motorcycles revving up kind of, you know, taking over the, the presentation of the, of the match. Um, yeah, it just wasn't it wasn't the best. Um, some of those events, they had some solid matches, but for the most part, those were throwaways. And that was another situation where WCW didn't charge tickets. You went there for free to watch it, so they didn't make a ton of money. Um, as Jim Ross would say, that the 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 idiots in the South Tower in the CNN Center, the 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 the, the, the corporate stooges, they 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 got a they 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 they, they got a set of brains on them over there. Yeah, Jr. Uh, mentioned that in the recent Legends of Wrestling Roundtable podcast, but or uh, Roundtable on the network, uh, talking about the, uh, the 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 corporate structure within Turner and how they they were stupid enough not to charge people. But um, even if they charge people, I don't think people at that motorcycle rally were going to pay to watch wrestling. That's for sure. Uh, but there's a few memorable moments from those events. The probably the most memorable one um, that is not memorable in a good way was the, um, the, the, the Hulk Hogan, um, Eric Bischoff match against, uh, Jay Leno and diamond Dallas page. Um, and that infamous, uh, scene where Leno has Hulk Hogan in a wrist lock and Hogan is selling it like Roddy Piper's putting him in a wrist lock. And that picture made the front page of USA today, I believe. Um, and that's what people remember about that event, that image right there. Um, you know, Hulk Hogan, who had made more money and drew more money in his dreams than than uh, you know uh, the majority of the wrestling business is being put in a compromising situation with a talk show host Jay Leno, who had no knowledge of the wrestling business, was doing this for a payday. He was a motorcycle nut, um, and he was going to be a part of Sturgis. And they thought they'd try and get that crossover appeal, and they got some of it. WCW attempted to to try and get that mainstream crossover appeal for. Um, that event, and I think they did a decent job, but it didn't do anything for them in the long term, um, having Jay Leno involved in a physical match. If he was in someone's corner and maybe he did something on the outside with Bischoff, like I could see that going down. But they got him in there in the ring, and I was like, Ugh. it wasn't great for sure, but I don't think it was uh, – if, if they if they limited his physical abilities um, and used him in – sparing moments i think it would have been a little more accepted than it currently is to the wrestling community so uh yeah those are some of the 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 road wild events i think some of the the more popular outdoor events that wcw did put on um were those spring break nitros that they did at the uh the club la vila and uh in in, in uh, panama city beach florida um, those Club La Vila events had the image of just like being at a party like you had to be there like as a teenager I was like damn I can't wait to go to spring break even though I never did I would watch those nitros and you had the the ring on this platform in the middle of the pool and you had all these you know college kids you know drinking drinking beer till they pass out and just kicking and screaming and cheering and hanging off the deck and the the pool area and sometimes the wrestlers would use the pool as part of spots in the in the in the show like you know nash and hall got thrown into the pool by the big show or the giant um i remember uh, a particular episode of 
the um, the the Spring Break Nitro where. Um, Hogan and Savage wrestled Sting and Luger and Sting came down repelling from a helicopter and the helicopter was so close that like the water was like splashing onto the, the platform and like um, guys were, you know, uh, the, 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 the chopper itself was like making, you know, all these waves in the pool and the, it was just so windy. I think Hogan's bandana fell off at one point, the visual of Sting coming down. Uh, that was pretty cool. Those made you feel like, like you said, you were at a party or you were watching a big party unfold. And I just thought the visual of like the ring in the pool was the coolest thing ever. I really did. I, I mean, if WWE were to ever do like a spring break show, like outdoors like that, like I think that would be so cool. Or even AEW, uh, Ring of Honor, whoever. I think that would be a pretty cool little setup like at Club La Vila. They should bring those back. That would be a lot of fun. Uh, maybe we'll do a watch party of uh, of one of those nitros uh, from, from Club La Vila. And it, it evolved over time. They, um, I believe they went to San Padre Island in Texas one year. Um uh, but the probably the most memorable spring break nitro was the last one in March 26th of 2001 when it was the final um, WCW Nitro when Nitro uh, when WCW was bought out by the WWF and uh, memorable for Booker T defeating Scott Steiner uh, becoming the, the, the WCW United States champion Sting and Ric Flair who wrestled on the first Nitro from the Mall of America in 1995 wrestling on the last Nitro in the main event um, not a memorable match to say the least from a from a bell to bell standpoint but the 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 irony and the history behind they're the two of them and, and uh, their association with WCW, I think, makes it memorable. Um, and then, of course, the 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 infamous um, uh, simulcast with Vince McMahon um, in Cleveland on Monday Night Raw and they simulcasted it on Nitro and you got to watch that on Nitro. Um, that was history. That was cool. I remember watching that event um, at home and I used to record raw and nitro on tape and i would record raw and then i would record the nitro replay later on in the evening and i managed to i managed to uh um, record them both at the same time i had the vcr recorded in the living room and i'm thinking my brother daryl's room which was next to the living room he had a tape he had a, um, a vcr with a tv and a cable box and i recorded nitro there um, it was definitely a history-making moment for sure. Um, seeing Shane McMahon come out in that uh, the, the 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 beach in Panama City and announcing that he had bought WCW in the storyline. Um, it was a very exciting time. It was a sad time, but it was also a very exciting time. And um, but and that was where I felt like the party was over. Like the presentation of being outdoors in the beach, like I felt that party was over. It was done with and it was somewhat sad. But when, you know, he comes out and makes that big announcement, um, it became a uh, it became a, um, a, a major history making moment. Now, um, you know, like I said, I discussed some of the, 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 the pros of that of those WCW events being outdoors and what they look like and some of the cons, um, you know, the the. The weather being an issue, they 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 locked out with the weather, but um, you know, the not paying for the event, uh, you know, people that went there watched those shows for free, um, 
those are some of the drawbacks to holding the events outdoors, especially like, you know, especially from WCW at that time. Um, as the outdoor stadium concept evolved, it moved to the um, probably one of the more um, heartwarming moments in wrestling history was the tribute to the troops concept that WWE put out in 2003 when they traveled to like Iraq or um, uh, uh, Kuwait um, over in the Middle East and they would set up a ring on a on a on a, a military base and uh, would wrestle for all the troops there that were unfortunately not allowed to leave and go home for the holidays to be with their families um, those were a lot of fun and even if like the troops weren't necessarily wrestling fans those guys got into it they were just into the show they were just happy to be entertained and grateful that wwe brought their guys out and entertained them and over time that tribute to the troops kind of um the outdoor setting had evolved i believe at one point they were at fort hood in um in uh in texas and they had a huge crowd for that show that was a huge stadium show um actually I wouldn't even call it a stadium show but it was on the military base um i believe that was in 2010 2011 maybe i could be mistaken but um in the last few years the concept had kind of kind of died down and then they, they they held the shows in arenas um like right before a smackdown taping and those to me were i that you, you lost that authenticity of performing in front of the troops. They gave tickets to troops, you know, for free that wanted to go, but they would they would hardly go. And if they did, they would seat them up in like the balcony and they would have to like edit the shots and show the guys cheering. And it would be the same group of troops in the crowd in the balcony cheering for something. It was just like a regular television presentation that WWE put out. Um Last few years, they've kind of gone back to that a little bit. They went back to a military base. Um, they were at a naval base last year. Um, the year before, they were at a, 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 another military base, um, and they had the, uh, the 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 different setting and feeling of of being in a wrestling event, but with the troops. And you know, they kind of brought it back full circle. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and as, as time has moved on, um, not only the evolution of the outdoor events with Tribute to the Troops, but with WrestleMania. And I discussed it earlier, uh, moving to, um, you know, stadiums and eventually outdoor stadiums. Uh, before WrestleMania or after WrestleMania 9, the last time the WWF held an outdoor WrestleMania was at WrestleMania 24. Um, in Orlando. And I remember reading an article I believe on WWE.com where um, at the time the mayor, Buddy Dyer, um, had had seen the success that WrestleMania brought to the city of Detroit, which was a failing economy in 2007. They brought over $25 million in revenue um, to the city of Detroit between hotels and restaurants and parking. And he wanted that for Orlando. And so he brought his team of people and delivered a PowerPoint presentation to WWE and and acquired WrestleMania for Orlando. He even had like statistics showing weather patterns for the month of March and April during the time period where WWE holds WrestleMania and how it would be appealing for WWE to bring a show 
to the area in an outdoor setting at the Citrus Bowl. And the, and WWE was so impressed that they took they, 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 they took all this into consideration and they brought WrestleMania to Orlando. And like I said, million dollars spent on production, four hundred thousand on pyro, thirty grand on on uh, on palm trees. Um, they took that stadium that was basically a shithole, um, an open air shithole, and they turned it into a WrestleMania worthy arena for one night only. Um, and that would continue. Uh, WrestleMania 28, I mentioned, at the uh, Sun Life Stadium, the old Joe Robbie Stadium, which is now, I think, the Hard Rock. Um, and they, they redid that stadium. They put a roof over it, retractable roof. They kind of modernized it. I was a little disappointed because I loved the look of the of the old Joe Robbie Stadium, the orange and the teal, like the Miami Dolphins colors. And I used to go to Florida Marlin baseball games when the Marlins were a big thing um, back Back in the early 90s when I used to visit my grandparents and I remember the memories at that stadium and um, yeah, the, uh, the they, they changed it over. But WrestleMania 28, you know, they took those color schemes, those old Miami Dolphins colors and the Florida, you know, uh, the, 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 the sun and the. The, the sand of Miami and they brought those together and they merged that with the WrestleMania brand and they presented it to you in this. You, you felt like you were. When you were at that stadium, like not only were you at like a Super Bowl, but you were at like a you felt like you had like little Miami in the middle of that stadium. You know what I mean? The, the, it had that South Beach kind of vibe to it. There it was just a different kind of vibe that, that made it so cool. And with the matches and how the, the whole card transpired and was presented, it was it was a, it was a fun time. Um, WrestleMania 29, like I said, uh, the, the 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 cold air. Um, being in the Northeast at that time of year uh, wasn't the most pleasant experience, but um, it was an experience nonetheless. And that was the last time I was at an outdoor stadium wrestling event. Um, the last WrestleMania I went to was WrestleMania 30 in the Superdome in New Orleans in 2014. That's indoors. And so the outdoor wrestling stadium um, concept has continued to evolve. Um, WrestleMania 31, California, that was held outdoors very successful like i said probably my favorite outdoor wrestling event to watch on tv um because of the way it looked and the way it was presented and of course the action that unfolded and uh wrestlemania 33 back at the citrus bowl in orlando they took the 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 amusement park theme that the city of orlando is so well known for with disney and universal and SeaWorld. They incorporated that into WrestleMania, and they spent $5 million on just the set alone with that long LED ramp entryway and the big globe, and it was just – it was a, it was a sight to see. If the, ma- if the matches sucked, you felt like you were still at a fun show because of the, the way it was presented and how it looked. Um, my brothers were there. They were just in awe and astounded at what they were, what they were watching. Um, like I said, the entrances are pretty long, so long that they didn't have Undertaker start at the top of the ramp. He was halfway down the ramp coming up from underneath it on like a like a platform to start his entrance. Um, so, yeah, that that definitely it's not one of my favorite WrestleManias, but um, when you go back and you watch it, it's it's a pretty cool sight to see 
you know, being outdoors, the pyrotechnics, and then, of course, that whole amusement park theme to it. They had built, like, a makeshift roller coaster and the globe that has WrestleMania, similar to the Universal Studios globe, and just the whole presentation of it. They really they, they, they really know how to do it up when it comes to an outdoor stadium setting. And um, as time evolves, I'm sure in wrestling we will see more of these events transpire and take place. Um, recently, AEW... Um, put tickets on sale for their all-out event in Chicago. And according to numerous sources, there were at least 100,000 people waiting in line, online, on Ticketmaster and all these other ticket sites to get their hands on AEW tickets. Now, who knows how many of those people were just, like, going to snatch up tickets and they're scalpers and they're just trying to, um, trying to you know, uh, make the most bang for their bucks selling these tickets at triple the face value or if they were those what do they call them those bots where they have like those those ticket kind of like like computerized software where it just like gobbles up a bunch of tickets and you pay for it like um but to me i feel like after hearing that story and the numbers that they were that that were shared publicly as to how many people were in line waiting for these tickets for an 11,000 seat arena in chicago um the future of stadium shows and even an outdoor stadium show is is very bright for someone other than WWE. I think over time, I think if AEW stays on the path that they do and you still see you still see the numbers that you're seeing when it comes to ticket sales, I could see them filling a stadium like like a Soldier Field in Chicago in the summertime or um, even a smaller baseball stadium, um, you know. Uh, Especially outdoors, I could just see that sort of vibe kind of happen. I think they want to get to that level, but you got to crawl before you walk and walk before you run. But they're at a pace right now where, if those numbers are true, that seventy-five thousand people to a hundred thousand people were waiting in line online for these tickets for an, an event that only held eleven thousand people, they could have tripled their revenue by selling it out in a stadium. Now, that's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And WrestleMania um, next year, 2020, is going to uh, be hosted at the Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, Florida. Uh, this will be the third time they – one, two, three – the fourth time they go to Florida. But this time, the first time they go to Tampa. Um, and the stadium hosts the Tampa Bay Buccaneers NFL team. They got that big pirate ship. It looks like they're going to go with like a – wrestlemania pirate kind of theme to it so that should be pretty cool i would imagine they're going to use that pirate ship that's in the middle of that or at the end of that stadium as a part of the presentation um that would be a pretty cool site for sure um in an outdoor setting and of course it's florida the weather seems to cooperate that time of year when it comes to wrestlemania who knows knock on wood Maybe uh, may, maybe we'll maybe we'll get a downpour that you know, next year. Who knows? Hope not. Hopefully not for the people that are there because it would suck to have to watch wrestling in the rain. But I feel like that the um, the future of outdoor wrestling events certainly um, is very bright. Not only just for WWE, but for you know groups like AEW. And who knows? Maybe maybe we'll see Ring of Honor. You know. Um, do a lot of stuff i mean locally in the independent level northeast wrestling here in connecticut they run a lot of like small baseball stadium shows um in the connecticut new york pennsylvania they've even ventured off into ohio and massachusetts in the last few years they do the wrestling under the stars tour and 
they get a good crowd. They get a good, you know, in these small baseball stadiums, they get a good about three, 4,000 people in some of these stadiums, depending on the size of them. Um, I've never been to one. I'd like to go at some point. Um, I know they're going to be in Norwalk, Connecticut at the, um, the uh, later in August. Uh, I know Dustin Rhodes is going to be a part of that show. Um, I believe John Moxley is going to also be a part of that show as well. I could be mistaken. I'll have to uh, look at the card again. But um, Darby Allen from AEW as well. Jerry the King Lawler. They usually get like Corey Graves. Um, those shows seem to do pretty well. Uh, Wrestling Under the Stars. Over the years, they had like Hogan headline once with Piper. They did like a Piper's Pit with Hogan and Piper um, in uh, Fishkill, New York. They do a lot of shows in Fishkill at the at the the local baseball stadium, Muzzy Field in Bristol, Connecticut. Um, like I said, Ohio, Pennsylvania. I believe they're doing Pittsburgh this year in an outdoor show. And like a minor league baseball stadium. And and that seems to be a big thing in the summertime for indie wrestling is that they run some of those minor league baseball stadiums. And they do pretty well because I think people want to experience a different experience going to a wrestling show and not, you know, sweating your fucking ass off in a gym for God knows how long that seats like three, four hundred people when you could be outdoors in the middle of summer watching an event under the stars and and, and then with a nice summer breeze. Um that experience of being out there um, has um, has an appeal to it. Ring of Honor has done it in the past. I know my, my good buddy AC from the Cooldown. Um, he's uh, he's been to a few Ring of Honor shows. Uh, Ring of Honor in New Japan. Did they, I think they did a joint show a couple of years ago in Brooklyn, the home of the Brooklyn Cyclones uh, uh, baseball team. They're the Double uh, A AA or Triple A affiliate. I believe they're the Double A AA or Triple A affiliate of the New York Mets. Um, he went to a Ring of Honor show. Ring of Honor New Japan joint show there, um, and that was a lot of fun. If I remember him telling me, he sent me some pictures. So um, the, the 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 minor league baseball stadium tour is is seems to be a thing um, for these independents. I know that um, you know the live event business in WWE isn't the greatest, especially in the summertime when people are away and go on vacation and you know don't have all the money in the world to spend to go see a house show, uh, but. I, you know, locally here in Connecticut, we have a, a minor league, we have a couple minor league baseball stadiums. Norwalk um, has its, has a stadium, um, uh, New Britain with the New Britain Bees and the, uh, the, the Hartford Dunkin' Donuts Park with uh, the Yard Goats uh, have, a, have, a, have a major league, sta- have a minor league stadium, I should say, for baseball. The double A of uh, the Minnesota Twins, I believe that's what the Yard Goats are. Anyhow, um, it would be kind of cool if WWE did like a live event, a house show from like a stadium like that. Uh, they used to do like uh, summer tours. They, they, the, they used to call them the, the, the summer tent tours, like in um, the Massachusetts, New Hampshire, um, even parts of Maine. They, they called them like the Cape Cod summer tours, the tent tours, and they would run like fairgrounds. And I remember they ran one um, at the Hampton Beach Casino Ballroom. It was indoors, but they did have a few outdoor shows on that tour. Um, if they did like small minor league baseball stadiums in the area, uh, I think that could draw well. And I think, um, you know, it could do um, it could do decent business for the summertime because the summertime is not the best drawing wise when it comes to wrestling because people are away and it's just not a good month. It's not a good couple of months, I should say, uh, when it comes to live events. But um, 
that would be pretty cool if, if someone ran like a local minor league baseball stadium um, in my area in Connecticut or wherever else. But like I said, the future is bright when it comes to outdoor stadium shows. And you know what? I think the, the uh, I think we've covered it all. I think I've covered quite a bit when it comes to my experiences and outdoor wrestling stadium shows as well as the history of some of these important memorable events thank you all so very much for sticking with me and being a part of this i had a lot of fun with you guys talking about this subject hope you guys you know had a lot of fun too if you guys have any outdoor stadium wrestling memories you can post them on the link um facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two at the show link when you go click on the show on our facebook or even on our twitter you can tell us what was your favorite outdoor stadium stadium wrestling event or moment whether it was a match whether it was a show you went to a show you watched on tv let us know um i love talking about it and you know if you guys want to talk more about it then by all means you know i'll be there waiting and ready for you over at facebook.com forward slash kicking out it too all right that about does it for this week it's time to put the well before we put the show down for the three count sorry false finish um let me give you guys a little rundown of what we going on what we got going on in the next few weeks here for this summer um we got a pretty jam-packed summer it's been pretty busy for me here personally i will say uh, my brother just got married recently and i got my grandmother in town so uh you know trying to put these shows together as well as my duties on marking out the day's weekend warriors has been a little difficult so i want to apologize um I've been doing some of these shows solo on my own because um, of, you know, time constraints and scheduling. So, you know, if, if, if you guys aren't a fan of me doing these by myself, I apologize whatsoever. I'm trying to get, you know, a, a good rhythm going with everything that's going on. And hopefully we'll be back to regularly scheduled programming within the coming month. But coming up in the next few weeks, we have next week, July the 31st, Trading Places, SummerSlam 1991. We go back to 1991, Madison Square Garden. We trade places with the results of that event, play a little role reversal and try and map out the trajectories of the winners and losers like we do with every Trading Places. You know, what what would happen if the match made in heaven ended a little differently? If it transpired just a little bit differently inside the hallowed halls of Madison Square Garden? What about the match made in hell? What if Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior couldn't get along and that affected their their uh, their their partnership and the triangle of terror come out the victors? And does Psycho Sid have anything to do with it? Sid Justice. Find out next week on our Trading Places SummerSlam 1991. The following week. The Watch Party Poll winner, SummerSlam 1992. We're going to sit down and watch that event from the UK, Wembley Stadium. That night, we saw Bret Hart and the British Bulldog put on a classic for the Intercontinental Championship in the main event. Ultimate Warrior and Macho Man for the WWF Championship. Shawn Michaels and Rick the Model Martel protected their good looks. Um, Nobody could hit each other in the face because they wanted to um, show their love and affection for Sensational Sherry. We saw Undertaker and Kamala. We saw the Legion of Doom and the the Money Incorporated. All that and so much more. Our SummerSlam watch party. Have your WWE Network ready to go and fired up. If it's a hot day in August and and you, uh, you, you, you want to just sit in the air conditioning, relax, turn your WWE Network on, hit it mute, then listen to us and our alternate commentaries. We watch SummerSlam 1992. The following week, we keep up with the SummerSlam theme is we're going to give you a bonus Trading Places series covering SummerSlam 2004. What if Randy Orton was unable to become the youngest world heavyweight champion in WWE history? What if JBL was a flash-in-the-pan champion and Undertaker dethroned him at SummerSlam 2004? What if 
Eddie Guerrero was able to lie, cheat, and steal away another victory from Kurt Angle. We talk about that entire card, 15-year anniversary, SummerSlam Trading Places 2004. We end the month of August with these next two shows that I'm really looking forward to. Bret Hart, Owen Hart, SummerSlam 1994 Steel Cage Match the my, from the My Favorites Collection. It's my favorite Steel Cage Match. I love it. I think it's it's without a doubt. Um, you know, when people talk about cage matches, they talk about, you know, the, the end-all, be-all and, you know, the, the violence factor. This brought the cage match concept to a whole nother level with Brett and Owen from SummerSlam 1994. We'll be approaching the 25-year anniversary of that, and we, we wanted to cover it with a special watch party of that match. So we're going to talk about the, the entire Bret Hart, Owen Hart family feud. We've kind of discussed it before on previous shows, but we're going to recap it a little bit, you know, button it up, and then we're going to sit down and watch Brett and Owen from SummerSlam 1994 inside of that 15-foot-high blue steel cage uh, approaching the 25-year anniversary. And then ending the month of August is a new concept to kicking out of two, which I call the Blind Date Diaries. Um, for those of you single folks out there, I'm sure you've been on a few blind dates, um, and I'm sure that some of those dates have gone really well, or some of those dates have gone right down the toilet. I know I've been on a few on both ends of the spectrum. So, um, buff, buff, buff. <sighs> bottom line is i'm going to take this event here that we're going to be covering called the big event from august the 28th 1986 33 years to the day and i'm going to recap it for all you guys i'm going to give you my my take and my perspective on each match on that show because i've never watched this event before ever up until the moment we do this recording um so you're going to get to hear my personal take on this event this event was headlined by hulk hogan and mr wonderful paul orndorff from the olympic stadium in uh i believe it was in toronto i want to say um in on august the 28th 1986 you also jake the snake roberts and ricky the dragon steamboat um and so many other great matches on this card. I've never seen this before. It's a very old wrestling event, so I'm going to watch it on WWE Network, and I'm going to give you my take. I'm going to give you my recap of my blind date with the big event from from 1986 and the WWF. And that about does it for the month of August, and that about does it for this week here on Kicking Out at Two. It's time that we put this show down for the three count. We will see you all next week. <laughs>